Hello, listener, and welcome to episode 62 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm Rachel Zucker. I've got a terrific conversation for you. I spoke with scholar, poet, playwright, professor, visual artist, Kadisha Queen, on October 19, 2018, when she was in town for the Dodge Poetry Festival. But before I get to Kadisha, I wanted to give you an update on a new project of mine and ask for your participation and support. In several episodes, I've mentioned the two books I've been working on, The Poetics of Wrongness, my collection of lecture essays, and Sound Machine, a book of not-quite-poem, not-quite-prose pieces. Sound Machine is going to be published in September 2019 by Wave Books, and I want to make an audio version of it. There are surprisingly few poetry audiobooks. One notable and excellent exception is Tommy Pico's audiobook of IRL. For a long time, though, I've wondered why there aren't more poetry audiobooks. Why, other than the obvious reason that poetry doesn't sell enough copies to inspire an audio market. And I've wondered why no one seems to be making inspired, immersive audiobooks. So, not just someone reading a book aloud, but a sound-rich audio experience of a text. I wanted to know what my writing could feel like, sound like, with noise, music, sound, silence. I want to explore the medium of audioverse as it has yet to be explored. With this project, I hope to expand the means and medium through which poetry is conceived, shared, and experienced. Making Commonplace has put me in close touch with amazing people like performance artist Alison Kobayashi and poets who make other kinds of art. Wayne Kostenbaum, Terence Hayes, Robin Cost Lewis, Nick Flynn, and D.A. Powell all have important visual practices. Julie Carr, Lainey Brown, T.C. Tolbert have worked with choreographers and dancers. Claudia Rankin recently wrote a play. Nearly all the poets I've spoken to for Commonplace, either directly or through collaboration, work in various genres and media. And some, like today's guest, Kadisha Queen, work in all the media. These artists and this experimentation has delighted, inspired, and emboldened me. So here's my plan. I'm collaborating with composer and sound designer T.K. Broderick and a bunch of other brilliant folks to make immersive audio verse pieces. To do this, I need your support. I need your support to help offset the costs of studio time, pre- and post-production, and compensating my collaborators. So please, please, please go check out the project at soundmachineproject.com and follow the link to the Kickstarter page, or you can find the Kickstarter link on commonpodcast.com. I have until January 17th to make my fundraising goal, and it's all or nothing. There are some terrific backer rewards, including a copy of Sound Machine, the book, immediate access to podcast episodes when they air, and other goodies. But any amount you donate would be incredibly helpful. And if you can't back the project with money, I totally understand. I'd be so grateful if you could spread the word. On the Kickstarter page, you'll see a beautifully made video of me explaining the project in greater detail. But today, I have a special treat for you, dear Commonplace listener. At the end of this episode, I will play a two and a half minute demo clip of what I hope will be the first 
immersive audio verse piece. I hope you'll enjoy this audio teaser of me, Allen Ginsberg, and other earthly and celestial sounds. I hope you'll back the project and encourage others to check it out as well. Okay, now back to episode 62 with Kadisha Queen. Kadisha is the author of five books, I'm So Fine, A List of Famous Men and What I Had On, Conduit, Black Peculiar, and Fearful Beloved. Her verse play, Non Sequitur, was produced and performed at Theater Lab NYC. A former sonar technician in the United States Navy, Kadisha is assistant professor of creative writing at University of Colorado Boulder and serves as core faculty for the Mile High MFA in creative writing at Regis University. She's also currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Denver. Kadisha and I talk about all these parts of her life, about feeling as intelligence, humor, healing, intuition, ancient traditions, fibromyalgia, gender violence, being single, the writing community in Denver, the patriarchy, gender violence, and much, much more. For this episode, Commonplace patrons will be entered in a raffle that includes I'm So Fine, Fearful Beloved, Conduit, Black Peculiar, all by Kadisha Queen, courtesy of Yes Yes Books, Argos Books, Akashic Books, and Noemi Press. The Life of Poetry by Muriel Rukheiser, courtesy of Wesleyan University Press, Living a Feminist Life by Sarah Ahmed, and The Blue Clerk by Dion Brand, courtesy of Duke University Press. Thank you, thank you, patrons, for making Commonplace possible. To become a patron of Commonplace, visit patreon.com slash commonplacepodcast or go to our website, commonpodcast.com, where you'll also find links to the people and texts Kadisha and I discuss in this episode. Both Kadisha and I were a bit tired by the time I set up the mics in her hotel room in Newark, New Jersey. Kadisha had been on two panels that morning, and I had done a three-hour recording for the podcast, The Longest Shortest Time. You'll hear the tiredness, the worry, the occasional scatteredness of two over-committed women in our 40s, mothers of sons in their first semester of college. But I'm not going to apologize for this, because I think you will also hear the intimate, quiet enthusiasm of artists who love what they do, who don't want to stop doing any of the things they care about. And I think you'll hear the joy and pleasure of our meeting each other in person for the first time and spending these precious moments together. I have been surprised, delighted, buoyed, and inspired by Kadisha's work, brilliance, honesty, energy, and generosity of spirit. I am so glad to be able to share the experience of speaking with her with you today. And stay tuned at the end for a clip from Sound Machine. Hello. Hello. I am so happy to finally meet you in person. Same. Super hype. So we're in Newark, New Jersey. You are here for the Dodge Poetry Festival. And I just had the pleasure of having a little lunch with you beforehand. So we got to chat a little bit. I wanted to start actually by asking how your writing life has changed, if it's changed at all, um, with your son being away at college and also your professional work life. Um, first, maybe we should say how many things you're doing. <laughs> you're in a PhD yeah. program. 
you just turned in the proposal for your dissertation, right? I just wrote it. I didn't turn it in yet. Okay. Yeah. And what's the field that you're going to be writing about? I am going to be writing about poetics, and I'm going to focus on literary analysis through feeling. Mm. I'm interested in how emotion can be uh, a critical part of thinking about the way a work is made and how it is analyzed, feeling as a kind of intelligence. So mm. I'm going to be researching that. Oh, my God. I love that topic. Oh, I'm excited. Do you know who you're going to focus on yet? No, but I have written a couple of essays about the radical poetics of love mm. and I think I'll be looking at some more um, Roland Barthes, and I would like to talk about Lucille Clifton, um, Muriel Rukeyser. She was my major figure for my comp exams, mm. so I'd like to get a little bit more into her poetics. Um, so I'm excited to just like write things about poetry and to do a little bit more research on the theoretical side and come up with my own theories. Okay, so but so you are a student, but you also teach. Yes, I was just hired as um, an assistant professor at University of Colorado in Boulder. Mm -hmm. So I teach two classes. What are you teaching this semester? I'm teaching a survey of poetry in English from the beginning to today. And I'm running it more thematically than I am chronologically, which is fun. Mm. We just finished talking about the pastoral cool. and the epic poem. So we read Song of Myself, obviously, and we also read uh, Tommy Pico's, um, some excerpts from IRL, and we're looking at Alice Notley for the long poem. Descent of Alette or, or the, the shorter long poems? The shorter long <laughs> poems, although like I might hit them with Descent of Alette next week. We'll see. We'll see how they're feeling. Yeah. And uh, Edward Hirsch's Gabriel, uh -huh. I'm going to talk about In the Mega on Monday. So just like trying to give them a really good sense of the epic as a contemporary yeah. mode of writing because they're very much interested in that. And uh, since a lot of the great epics are in Greek or Latin, thinking about the epic or the long poem in English. Mm -hmm. So your student, your professor, mm -hmm. um, you're writing a memoir about your time in the Navy. Yes. Yes, I'm doing that slowly, very, very slowly. Uh-huh. And it may become fictionalized. We'll see. I'm calling it. I'm calling it prose now because I don't know what, how it's going to turn out. Okay. Yeah. And you have written a play. You've written five volumes of poetry. Your most recent book, I'm So Fine, has uh, the subtitle "A Narrative." Yeah. We were trying to figure out like what to call it. Like, what kind of book is this? Mm -hmm. And I was going back and forth with my publisher about it, and I didn't quite feel comfortable calling it memoir mm -hmm. and it's also like kind of not exactly a poem so we came up with narrative as kind of a good middle ground and an accurate way of describing mm. the book okay then you also have a background in visual arts or at least an interest mm -hmm. in visual arts Wait, and what am I forgetting? I must be forgetting. <laughs> no, like, I don't a million. think you are. <laughs> I mean, I teach, I have some grad students uh -huh. um, through Antioch University oh, right. and Regis University. So and I'm that's doing a low that res. Yeah, low mm -hmm. res. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you, and you've kept that? Yes, yes. Yeah. Very talented students. It makes it easy to work with them. 
along with all of this, perhaps sometimes pulling in the same direction and other times not, you're also a single mom. So I guess back to my original question, you've right. done all this stuff and you're still doing all the stuff. Have things um, changed for you um, since your son has been not living at home with you? It's only been a couple of months. So I don't know if I've processed that yet. And I don't know if he's going to like come home. Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, I don't know how, how long I'm going to have this sort of time to myself. So I guess the thing that has changed is that I don't have to cook mm. so often. So I eat out a lot more. I was already like doing that because I'm busy and I have fibromyalgia. And so having the energy to cook at the end of the day, just like sometimes it doesn't happen. So I would just order out. But mm. so I'm doing less cooking because there's nobody like hungry mm. walking around the house. <laughs> no giant man child <laughs> looking in the refrigerator and emptying it uh -huh. every couple of hours. So that has been something that enables me to focus more on my reading. Mm. It's quite a lot of reading for the PhD and also for teaching prep. I recently spent a week kind of issuing other things because I had the feeling that I needed to finish this manuscript. Mm. So I was just working on that last week and um, have a draft of some things. We'll see. It needs a little bit of work, but we'll see what, what happens. These are new, new yeah, pieces. new a new manuscript. Some of these poems are really old, but just like trying to figure out how they fit as a manuscript. Do you have a title yet? It's called Anodyne. Oh, I love that title. Yeah. When I was studying for my GREs, um, I did like vocab flashcards, and I was really good until G. <laughs> so I know a lot of A words. Nice. <laughs> Anodyne is one of them. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I totally learned that for studying for the GRAs. Um, Want to read us something from the new work? Sure. I've been working on a book that became a chat book instead called Exercises in Painting. It was a series of poems, and some of, some of them have stayed in that series. This is one that I took out and made it its own poem. And the title is The Usual Old Shoe Still Lifes in October, Birds Again. On the roof's right corner, a thuggish blue jay lands heavily on tarred shingles and departs after a feral glance my way. Lighter, sparrows inch closer in, moss-mouthed, plumbing eaves for nesting. Flashes of jet on the jay's face, its tail, white on azure, such a serious flight. In my sun-stroked eyes make a faded photograph I double expose, which reminds me I left a hair tie in your bucket seat. But I'm alone at this cabin. The floor's wood grain so old it snags my good socks. What would I do barefoot? Tire my legs out and splinter, trying to run from soft creatures. Hmm. I'm interested in the fact that um, some of the poems in this book are going to be quite old. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean by quite old? Like what, how, how long ago did you write the oldest poem in here? Probably like 2012, 2011, uh -huh. something like that. But yeah, that one's around 2012 vintage, I would say. 
I think that's something people don't talk about super much. Like um, when you you publish a book and then actually the next book has pieces in it that are older mm-hmm. than the book that came right before. Mm-hmm. My next book has a few pieces in it that are more than 10 years old that didn't go into my previous books. Was it more that you wanted to find a home for those older pieces and then they inspired kind of the new ones or the new ones made you go back for the old ones? I think all of that. <laughs> <laughs> I think the things that we think about don't necessarily go away or like sometimes it takes time for them to settle mm-hmm. and find the conversation that they want to be a part of. For me, some of these more like visually oriented slash narrative pieces seemed to be a little more... um floaty and I couldn't complicate them in a manuscript because the other book took over Mm. right so it took a while to like help them arrive at a complication interesting enough for a book and so just so I understand exercises in painting which was a chap book Mm -hmm. is going to be in this new book as well right and all of them together or spread out throughout the book They're like sectioned off into five or six at a time. Oh, cool. Yeah. So a little bit similar to Fearful Beloved. Yeah. Yeah. So what I mean by that for someone who hasn't read Fearful Beloved, and you totally should, is that how do do you think of it that there's one poem spread out throughout the book? So it's like a a recurring sequence. Uh Uh-huh. What appeals to you about that kind of form? Because it sounds like this is a sort of similar gesture. I don't know. I just like it. Is that a bad answer? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> Honest. I try to make them like their own little sections, but I enjoy, again, like a conversation between the pieces. I think when you have a mix of abstract type of poems and narrative poems, mixing it up can um, create more texture in terms of structuring a manuscript. I guess the reason I even asked, it was actually like a psychological question hiding behind a craft question, (laughs) as often is the case for me, (laughs) which I think has to do with like the question I actually asked you already, which is, you know, I read in an interview, I think that you gave that you are really diligent about making sure you write every day. So in a way, the question that I started with about like, how has your life changed since your son is not in the home with you right now? It seems like you already had found ways of making sure that your writing life was protected a a little bit, right? A little bit. And it's like when I came up against like certain deadlines, I would just figure it out. Like, but certainly other things fell by the wayside, Mm -hmm. uh, including like health things and like eating well and sleep I'm trying to do better with that like I had a moment where I wasn't writing at all but I I find that if I don't write then I'm kind of like losing it so Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have to figure out how to put something in place as a daily practice that has to do with writing even if it's not like writing poems Mm -hmm. if I'm just like writing something like about what I appreciate about the day or Uh, writing an email to my sister or 
texting my son some memes, even though he said I can't text him memes. <laughs> Wait, why not? <laughs> hey, I can't send him like funny Twitter links. I can't send him like cub why? animals on Instagram because he said it's like too much. It's like it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an annoying parent. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So yeah, I can't do that anymore. But anyway, so I'll text it to my sister instead uh-huh. <laughs> or my friends. I guess that's what I'm sort of getting at. You seem to me to be somebody who it's really important that you do kind of each of these things, but you're really not highly compartmentalized either. Like you have all these different kinds of writing, different genres, different ways of being in the world, ways of thinking and learning and teaching and reading and writing. Your work also kind of looks like that. A kind of fluidity, a kind of connectedness, a kind of willingness to bring disparate things together. Mm-hmm. Like writing is not just one kind of writing. Right. Um, influence is not just one kind of influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And non sequitur is like that, too. The verse play that um, is in Black Peculiar and that I expanded mm-hmm. for um, the Litmus Press publication associated with the Scalapino award it's it's the same structure throughout same kind of conceit but there's variety within it right Mm. um i haven't (laughs) i probably should but i haven't really like thought about what my habits are as a writer in terms of repeating structures until recently as i was writing this new book and i'm like oh i have a three-part structure like i did in my first book will this last i don't know maybe i'm gonna change that because i don't want to repeat myself but then again repeating yourself as a poet is like something that we do so why not just like embrace that so Mm -hmm. i don't know um i don't know that i have any like quality judgments around like how we should or should maintain our structural habits as Mm -hmm. writers i think the content and the form dictate what the overall shape of the manuscript is going to be in a lot of ways but i'm i'm also open to moving things around if it doesn't feel right, then I change it. Um, listener, I just closed the window. Uh, <laughs> okay, wait a second. So I all feel right. like I went on a whole long tangent no, and didn't answer okay, your question. You, no, you <laughs> totally answered my question. And I'm going to annoyingly point out that twice you've apologized for basically working intuitively mm. on your own art. Let me cut that shit out. And immediately. You, and you just sort of said, it has to feel right, mm-hmm. but with a sort of like slightly embarrassed tone. But like your your dissertation is right. going to be on this topic. I guess I don't have the theoretical language around it yet. And so it's making me pause, especially because it feels like in the past people have been disappointed with that reply. And which is one thing that made me want to study it because I was trying to find like an existing critical framework around it, but found myself disappointed. I'm really interested in like the way that we might answer the question in the future in which your critical literary theory framework exists, in which we might answer the question, yeah, 
I did this through feeling. Mm -hmm. That was what led me. And I knew to do this because it felt right and that we'd have the language, you know, for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Would you be willing to read the last poem in I'm So Fine? Sure. Okay. Any other name? Khadija means wife of the prophet. Nothing about my name is casual. Your mouth has to make an effort. You have to commit to all eight letters, all three syllables, no nickname. It means something Uber drivers, the Muslim ones, all men, want to tell me about even after I say yes when they ask, do I know? They want to know how old I am and where I'm from. They want to get in my business. Where is my husband? Some men can't stop telling me who I am or what exactly is so incredible about me or what they had to take or offer without asking. They still say it's my fault I am beautiful. I was raised as a Muslim. In the name of Allah, most gracious, most merciful, shouldn't I thank God for the kind of beauty that makes me so desirable an object, so in demand by strangers, you might say my name cursed me to solitude. I don't see any prophets around, do you? If so, pass out my number, tell them I said, what's up, where have you been all my life? I know it's a line, but people like familiar things, like fellow boring straight people. Hey, I'll be 44 in a few years, and I have a tradition to live up to, a prophecy perhaps. Chop, chop. I cut off my hair because I wanted to begin again with something on my body no man has touched. I wanted to press rewind. I still want the kind of purity that cures men of acculturated entitlement. I want a little silence when I walk down the street or get into the back seat of a hired car in any city I travel to. Maybe I have to marry myself. Maybe I am my own prophet. I want to stop reacting and keep creating and to do that maybe I need a new kind of a job that makes me safer unseen, free of both sound and adornment. I could use that kind of safety. Sartre said hell is other people, and by the token of time through the ages, surely a French philosopher knows whether man equals less than desire, and surely man is in loss, except those who do good works, and enjoin one another to the truth, and enjoin one another to patience and constancy. My mother told me I should keep some things to myself. She should have said, keep yourself to yourself, but it was in her nature to be generous. I learned that kind of giving leads to further taking and it's a light that attracts parasites. What's an ex-Muslim girl to do? Keep praying. The world of prophets is elite. They don't let just anyone in, lol, not wives. Sometimes I want to cut myself out of all possible institutional pictures. Sometimes I am in a collage I made myself and I have a new name. I have a name I have given myself and I'm the only one who knows what it means. But that doesn't make sense. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Like the first time I was taken from myself, my father asked me what I learned, and that is what I learned. I learned I had no father, but I could walk in the rain and let my hair rise up in the night, become a black halo, amen, curling closer to my head as if to love it, softly greeting as if saying, peace be unto me. A man can break you with your own love if you don't remember who you are, among the non-believers. All praise is due to the part of me that listens to herself first. The first time I drew a rose, I couldn't stop layering in new petals. My small right hand filled the flimsy newsprint, 
with red Crayola spirals, the lines unbroken, the endless making as sweet as being out of the order other people like to think you are born to. There's an invitation that I want to give my students to find ways to be clear and go wherever they need to go and not worry about uh, a particular kind of order. And I think that your book really does that. And even though the pieces, you know, they they look like prose on the page and they're very similar, just the way they look on the page, within each one, they have this like magically propulsive quality, but we'll go anywhere with you because the speaker is so compelling because there is clarity, but also it feels like authentic, like it's not an argument. It's not a manipulative kind of like, let me tell you what this poem is about, or let me tell you, you know, you haven't figured it out. Yeah, I think that's probably like the thing I don't, that I like least mm-hmm. in a poem, telling you what it's about. I like the sense of simultaneity yeah, and happening aliveness in a poem. That's what I respond to most in work. And um, what I like to create is an experience in which an understanding can be arrived at collaboratively. The poems cover a tremendous amount also of emotional ground. And I wanted to ask you about humor Mm -hmm. because your work is really funny. It's also sometimes really not funny. Mm -hmm. And I was watching a YouTube video of you reading um, Act One, Scene One um, of your oh, for play. Yeah. yeah. And people in the audience are laughing. And the YouTube comments, I don't know if you've seen this, but no. there's just a <laughs> few of them. And they basically are saying, there's a few different people saying, wait, why are people laughing? That's not funny. That's serious. Mm-hmm. And really taking offense wow. at the laughter look at in, in, in a protective way. And so I was wondering how it's been for you, particularly reading from I'm So Fine to audiences that haven't read it, because I think that you do, you invite us to laugh, you invite us But then we are often, as the reader, caught up in a moment where we're laughing and we're like, wait a second, now something really bad is happening. You know, now I'm laughing, but I'm also complicit in the male gaze. Oh, wait a second. All of a sudden, this is about violence against women. You know, not all of a sudden, but Mm -hmm. this is also. It It happens whether or not you laugh. Yeah. So I think humor is a survival mechanism. Like you have to laugh. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. You ain't going to make it, man. Mm -hmm. So and I think recently, since we've become more aware of gender violence, the seriousness has uh, deepened. But when I was writing these, they were just funny to me. They were funny stories to me. And then as they developed, Actually, it was a niece of mine who pointed out, like, that's, like, super fucked up. <laughs> and I'm like, kind of is. And then, then I started thinking about how many messed up things uh, that I have witnessed and or survived. And so I think it's good for people to interrogate where that line is. Mm-hmm. And it's also good to use laughter as, as, as survival. And it's also good to, like, really take it seriously and break it apart. 
So all those things, I think, can exist at the same time in the same space. And that's kind of what the book is doing. Yeah, I had a lot of fun writing this book, even though it's like a lot of super jacked up things in there. Uh, I have fun writing it. I also cried writing it. Yeah. So, you know, as part of the full spectrum of human experience. Did you write this all in one shot? No, Mm -mm. you wrote a few of them and people really liked them. And then you kind of were Mm -hmm. you you were sort of. Am I right that you said like you didn't think it was really going to be a book for a I long really time? I really didn't. I yeah. thought it was just like stories about how I grew up. It was uh-huh. just like, you know, funny little stories. And, but people really enjoyed them. And so I just kept writing more. And um, when I sent it to Yes, Yes, I did a little bit of work with KMA Sullivan. And she was like, we need more of the older voice. Huh. And so I wrote like 15 or so more newer pieces in the older voice. And there are some that, that like got taken out and I, I'm probably going to send one of my friends asked me for the rejects. Huh. So some of those might come out somewhere. There's one about uh, Jason Momoa <laughs> <laughs> and one about Ludacris. I saw him at the Flying Biscuit. Like, you know, so so it's the gift that, keep, that keeps on giving. <laughs> Want to read another one? Sure. So I have two older sisters and I used to watch them get dressed. They're like 12 and 13 years older than me. Oh, wow. And they would like go out, you know, for the evening and like the outfits with like the colored pearls and like paisley stockings and stuff. So we just like really enjoyed watching them get ready. Um, But this particular story that uh, my sister Kim told me made it into the book. My two older sisters met Danny Glover off Rodeo in La Brea back in the mid 1980s. They had underage partied the night before and still high on weed and drinking Mad Dog 2020 and not even from paper bags and broad daylight and their hair a mess when he rolled up to them in a midnight blue Mercedes and said, y'all are too young and too beautiful to be walking down the street drinking that garbage like alcoholics in the afternoon and you better promise you won't do it again and they promised and tossed the bottles into the nearest trash bin. They both had on ironed Levi's 501s and ruffle-sleeved blouses and white Nikes and kept future walks liquor-free and made sure to keep their hair done, too, because you never know who might see you. Uh, I know you have fibromyalgia, Mm -hmm. and I sort of read one aspect of the title, I'm So Fine, in terms of an expectation that someone who looks good feels good. Right. Right. So I don't know. I was wondering if you could talk about that. I'm interested in the way in which physical pain, discomfort, and physical challenges that aren't apparent to someone else who may be seeing you or interacting with you, how that affects your daily living and how it affects your writing and and your relationship to what you tell the reader. Yeah, I think I operate like that's my normal right Mm -hmm. Um, whatever that fraught word is but that's like my daily way of being is living with a chronic pain and fatigue syndrome so but the expectation when you go out into the world is that you're fine Mm -hmm. and everything is fine you're expected to do that regardless of if you're at a seven or eight on the pain scale or if you haven't slept because you're in pain and so therefore you're in more pain Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's like super uh, horrible loop Um, but some days are better than others I think what helps the most is doing things that I love to do Mm. so regardless of whether or not I'm not feeling well if I'm doing things I like doing it's easier to do them 
even though I don't feel well. Mm. When you have fibromyalgia, generally, you're always in pain. You're always tired. It's just like the baseline. Mm. So I just try to do the things that help with that. Like I um, have a massage therapist that I've been seeing for five years since I, you know, ever since I moved to the city I'm in now. I have a regular acupuncturist. I have a regular chiropractor. So those are the things that help the most. I don't take any pharmaceuticals for it right now because the ones that I have tried and I've tried so many had a lot of side effects that interfered with my writing. Mm. So interestingly, I just kind of have to live with the pain part so that my brain is not foggy when Mm. I'm trying to work. It keeps things acute. That's for sure. But yeah, I mean, I am fine. Everything's fine. But also things are fucked up. That's like kind of how we live anyway. Right. Yeah. Especially if we think about the political environment. You know, a lot of times most of us are just we're fine, like dealing with our lives. But what's going on 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 Nauru Island in Australia? What's going on with the the Kavanaugh stuff? What's going on with uh, Jamal Khashoggi? You know, a lot of things are super fucked up. Yeah. A lot of things are super fucked up. And like what even is our baseline anymore? Mm -hmm. Baseline is pain. Yeah. So I just live like that. One thing that I've heard and read is that chronic conditions, but particularly fibromyalgia, has been really misdiagnosed, underdiagnosed, especially for women, Mm -hmm. and that there's a lot of people who are, you know, disbelieving uh, that it exists. And, you know, that has got to be... It's the worst. Let me just tell you, it's the worst. I took two years for them to figure out that that was what was wrong with me. I found it, like, on the internet. I was like, this is like describing everything that's going on with me. Is this what's wrong? Mm. And the doctor said, no, that's a wastebasket diagnosis. And they made me take all these tests. And I went back and forth, neurologists and like skin tests and nerve tests and MRIs. And turns out, no, yeah, it's it's fibromyalgia, which is what I said it was two years ago. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's delightful. And I had issues with some family members not knowing. Mm. Um, what exactly it entailed or thinking that I was exaggerating or whatever, all that exhausting BS. But I think I'm in a good place with it now. Mm-hmm. I'm able to articulate what I need. I'm able to recalibrate when the balance that I've created gets thrown off for some reason. Mm-hmm. But I certainly miss out on things. Like I don't, I don't date, for example. I don't have time. Mm-hmm. Um, if I would rather be writing, but I use up that energy on like some dude who says stupid stuff to me while I'm trying to eat, I just like can't. Like I don't, I just can't. <laughs> like I don't have it in me right now. I'm like trying to do stuff. So let me finish my PhD first. Uh huh. Let me finish a couple books and then maybe I'll think about it. Yeah. How long has the dating strike been? It's been a while. Uh huh. It's been a while. I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> You know, my mom was not with anyone for a long time. Um, There were times where she was with someone and then she wasn't. And looking back on that, uh, I have complicated feelings about it, both imagining her as lonely and also being so envious Mm -hmm. um, of the time that she had and the way that she put herself first. Yeah. and which I've not done yet. Right. This is like the first time I'm able to do that. 
So I'm like basking in that mm-hmm. circumstance. Yeah. I don't have to like clean up nobody's dirty dishes. I don't have to pick up nobody's dirty socks. The only laundry I got to wash is mine. Mm-hmm. I don't have to have any accountability other than, you know, what I already have. I go to sleep when I want to, wake up when I want to. It's pretty ideal. So I'm going to enjoy it while yeah. I can. It doesn't mean I'm not open to something great, but I'm enjoying my creative renaissance in semi-solitude because I don't feel alone like I'm around people all the time yeah literally all the time and the people that you're around and the situations that you're in like what does feed you what gives you energy rather than draining it away like sounds Mm -hmm. like you've gotten better and better at self-care although you just said like you know often sleeping you know, and because health there's stuff. there's so many things that I want to do. Yeah. And I say yes to things and then realize that I don't have the energy for it. And then I feel bad about it. And then I have to like try to fit it in there, like all this stuff. But um, the poets community and the writing community in Denver is pretty incredible. Mm. There's so many talented people that live in the area. Um, Summer Browning, Suyun Juliet Lee, Carolina Abade, and her husband Jeffrey Pethybridge, and their son Patrick, uh, who runs uh, Visible Binary. Aaron Rose Maker is one of my colleagues at University of Denver, she's a fiction writer. Emily Pettit, Ben Ramke is one of my professors. Mm. So, yeah, um, there's a scholar, Tiana Hardin, who's been really instrumental in helping me think about what I want to do as a scholar. So, yeah, I feel, definitely feel fed and supported by the community in Denver. And when I am not feeling well, nobody, like, makes me feel bad about missing stuff. Because mm-hmm. I, when I can go, I do. I definitely do. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I lost my track. No, no. I was asking, you know, what gives you energy or feeds you? And it seems yeah. like um, uh, you have a good community there. I do. Yeah. And I have long distance friends, uh-huh. long time friends from grad school who I call, you know, um, and my family. My family's delightful mostly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> are they? Are any of them in Denver? Nope. Wow. Is that good? Yep. <laughs> we stay close yep. by staying far my sister sends me pictures of her two children and they're ridiculously adorable that's helpful mm-hmm. I like memes I'm on Instagram I have a private Instagram that I post a lot on and a public one that I don't post on as much but I, I'm active on on Instagram mm-hmm. I like visual things i go see art shows um i read articles about art i'm still like secretly slash not secretly making visual work um i took a class with renee gladman at this place called the lighthouse writers workshop in denver Uh uh-huh and she had us making um visual pieces what are you making what do they what do they look like and i make still lifes i make watercolor like abstract watercolors i make colored pencil line drawings i make charcoal things i make ink drawings so just like whatever i feel like and have time to make mm-hmm. that's not too messy that i can make in my apartment i like making collages I did a tutorial with Ben and uh, Emily Pettit on visual hybrid miniature worlds. Whoa. So I made like little tiny collages for that. That was fun. 
Do you like keeping the two practices somewhat separate or do you hope to bring that writing and visual art making together? That is an aspiration mm -hmm. for some time and place when I'm not this busy. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would have to be immersive mm -hmm. to be successful. So at lunch, we were talking a tiny bit about particularly like women scholars or women poets who are scholars who either have PhDs um, or who have done a serious education degree or not mm -hmm. that's like deep and substantial, but who don't wear that on their sleeve or whose affect or demeanor or style kind of makes it seem like they're poets who are not also scholars. And right. I was mentioning Sharon Olds, yeah. you know, as one example. I think a lot of people don't know that she has a PhD. I think a lot of people underestimate how brilliant she is, mm -hmm. how deeply well-read she is. And, you know, so here you are, um, you have all of these talents, you have all of these experiences, and you are also on the road to becoming a doctor of <laughs> literature. Um, and I, I don't know, I, was, I just kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit. I don't have a PhD. I will never get a PhD. Of course, now that I say that. Now you want to oh, get no, one. Now I want a PhD. <laughs> right. um, no, I really don't want a PhD. <laughs> That sounds terrifying. I lived through my husband's PhD, and um, oh, okay. that, was, that was that plenty. was rough. Some uh, PhD in English it's was not a game. You earn that. You earn that thing. You do. And people who don't like really know what that degree is do not understand. Mm -mm. You don't until you get there. Because no. I didn't know. I didn't understand what I was getting into, but I found out. <laughs> I'm so glad you're doing it because I want to read what you're going to write and I feel like it's going to change your all your writing. Yeah. And I hope yeah. it's it also gives you a kind of protection and gravitas that you shouldn't need, but right. let's be real, people are constantly underestimating women, black women in particular. Mm -hmm. So but I was well, it wondering, happens all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. I'm it's like the default. Mm -hmm. Right? Just Living in public spaces, I mentioned uh, in the poem about taxi drivers wanting to tell me what my own name means because mm -hmm. they assume that I don't know or they think I'm like 25 because the way I look or whatever. I'm like, no, I have an 18 year old son. I'm a grown ass woman with multiple degrees. You can carry on. Mm -hmm. um, but I try to be nice about it because they don't they don't know. But they could, they could they know. Could, they could listen. <laughs> yeah. They could, or they could ask yeah. and then believe me when I say that I know. Mm -hmm. I think I've, that's happened once recently. He asked if he could ask me a mm -hmm. question first. Can I ask you a question about your name? So that was nice. And he believed me when I told him I knew what it meant. Mm -hmm. So then he told me what it meant to him for me to know, which is a much more interesting conversation than somebody just regurgitating something I memorized since I was four years old. But why is that the exception? <laughs> I mean, <right. laughs> I mean, patriarchy. Patriarchy is a really stubborn thing. Like, it seems almost impenetrable at times, and yet we persist. I love your use of the word impenetrable just there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, and yet we persist. And yet. Yeah. 
Thank mm-hmm. God. Okay. In your fantasy of finishing your PhD, mm-hmm. do you feel like the change will be more internal but visible perhaps to others because of the way that it has, you know, you already have degrees. So people who have an ignorance around what women are capable of, I would hope that they could, in encountering me, find reason to question their default assumptions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what I would hope. And I have found that that has occurred (laughs) when I start talking (laughs) Uh, or they found out that I have books or whatever, but like, I don't like to move in the world wearing a resume. You know what I mean? Like that shouldn't be how I have to walk around in order to be respected or believed or trusted. And that's, that's a larger issue that I feel that my getting a PhD can't um, change. I'm reading The Blue Clerk by Dion Brand, and she used the word uncontainable. And I was saying that I would love to be a part of an intelligence or a creative practice that feels uncontainable, that even if we encounter this sort of um, impenetrable force, we because we are uncontainable, it cannot be suppressed um, and instead becomes etheric so i'm interested in that what does etheric mean that's like it's it's in the atmosphere it's uncontainable but different than ethereal correct so ethereal feels like more temporary than etheric Uh to me i love that and also more gendered Uh uh-huh what else are you reading that's like that sounds amazing it's a great book. Yeah. I, everybody should just read everything Dion Brand ever wrote. What else am I reading? I just finished Overcomps Scenes of Subjection by Saidia Hartman, mm-hmm. which was terrifying and heartbreaking and also like incredible in its both emotional and intellectual rigor. What's on my list is um, Sarah Ahmed, Living a Feminist Life. I am reading Margaret Cavendish mm-hmm. for my early modern literature class and I'm finding her imagination, her attention to imagination delightful, even though it's like a little bit colonialist in its content. (laughs) Um, But I find it heartening that women, even in the 17th century, were thinking about the imagination as a women's domain slash space of liberation from the expectations of outside world. Mm. It's not a new thing. It's been going on for the longest. That was another one of my comp essay areas was the fact that people have been dealing with slash discussing slash talking out, speaking out against discrimination and these problematic roles and characterizations of people of color and of, and of women since the beginning of its implementation. They've always been talking about it. Melville was talking about it. It's not like you can dismiss and say, oh, that's how they were thinking at the time. Yeah, but there were people saying, no, this is super fucked up way back then. So hundreds and hundreds of years. So can we like, can we, can we like move the conversation forward? And I think the way to do that is imagination. Does it give you, does it make you feel hopeful to know that this has been going on forever? Uh, Kind of. And also depressed because, yeah. No, it's exciting for me. And I Uh think just 
trying to make people more aware of that can give them pause when they try to make excuses for people who continue to hold on to problematic views. I, I was just, I told you this earlier, but I was talking about Adrian Rich and a woman born on this podcast um, this morning. And the end of that book, which I hadn't really remembered, I don't have it with me, but she basically says, you know, we must change this so that women are in control of their bodies um, and their imaginations and we will have a new way of thinking this is where we must begin yes. that was 1976 though right. come right. on yeah um so i guess it's about beginning and beginning and beginning and beginning but yes, uh, but yes. i just can we begin and continue yes continue yes that would be really lovely right i would love that mm-hmm Yep, and everybody should also read, besides reading of Woman Born, they should also read The Life of Poetry by Muriel Rukeyser. Mm -hmm. She talks about the fear of poetry and how that emotional resistance, or like the resistance to the emotion that poetry makes us feel, mm -hmm. keeps us from having a total human experience. Like, why are we so separate from our feelings? Well, here Who we go back again to the feelings, right? Yeah. 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 Who benefits? Right. We certainly don't. Well, and also some people are allowed to have feelings and other people Correct. are not allowed to have feelings. Correct. And the feelings can only look a certain way. Yep. And rage is a really super interesting one. Oh, yeah. I love rage. <laughs> I have a lot of rage. Yeah. What are your favorite emotions, Kadisha? I like them all except sadness. I can't say that I like it, but I have come to terms with it. I feel like we're moving away from a more psychoanalytic version of like self-conception towards a more cognitive behavioral version of self-conception mm -hmm. to some extent. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about that in terms of feeling as an emotional state and um, conceptions of the body, in particular pain. So like I feel like we're moving into a territory scientifically and psychologically where people are like more and more interested in emotions as just sort of neurochemical. I don't mean just mm -hmm. um, the connection between emotional and affective states and the way our bodies work. You know, maybe it's not that we feel sad because of something that's external, but it's of the same way that we might have indigestion or that we might have mm -hmm. a pain response, a physical pain response that's causing an emotional state. I'm not explaining this well no, at no, all. No, no, I get what you're what you're saying, I think. Um because I have the fibromyalgia, it's I notice when emotions are translating into physical pain. Mm -hmm. Like I literally cannot do stress because I'll just my body will just say nope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I can't do anything. It's just like gets in my muscles and, and doesn't leave until it's ready. So I think that going back to more ancient kinds of knowledge that we don't all have access to anymore because of patriarchal imposition, like um, we need to go back to ancient forms of knowledge and woman-centered knowledge, 
the knowledge that your grandmothers had. Um, like my grandmother, if you burned yourself, she would say peel a potato and put it on the burn and then it wouldn't scar, you know, that kind of stuff. Things that things that you know by doing and by living and not necessarily by some proven theory in a lab and artificial conditions. The things that we know work because human beings have used these remedies, right? Not like the ones that are approved by your HMO. And and that applies to critical thinking as well. It didn't it wasn't always separate, you know, the the mind and the body and the spirit like, you know, that whole Judeo-Christian tradition which I did not really grow up with by the way so I'm, I'm probably gonna like I don't know if I if I'm explaining it clearly but it seems like this sort of separation between mind body spirit has has created this kind of violent rupture in the way that we think about what being a human is so we kind of have to like put it back together again and, and get at um a wholeness that um heals the person in full and not just the one thing that is signaling the warning that something is not right with you mm -hmm. or something is off that needs to be addressed. Um, because some of us live in bodies in which something is always going to be quote unquote wrong. But like, how can a person be wrong? Just like a person can't be illegal, right? A person can't be like wrong just in the way that they exist. So I don't really like that word either when we're talking about the body. I think it's time to figure out how to accept one another as we are and be accepting of ourselves. And that can create a kind of healing um, of the whole person mm -hmm. that translate into, translates into less both emotional and physical pain. I feel like I'm going on a long tangent. It's like, can we just do the things that work? <laughs> Why are we like trying to figure out if it's approved or not? Like, that's the most irritating ass thing to me. Like, how you gonna approve something or disapprove something that works? Right. That don't make no sense to me. Well, I guess I guess having just like looked back a little bit at uh, at Rich, I mean, one one of her theories or one of the things she touches on is that idea of like that it is so terrifying, particularly for men to imagine how helpless they were mm. at the hands of usually a mother, usually a mm -hmm. woman who was caring for them before they had any agency and ability, right? Because right. we all were in that state mm -hmm. that, um, you know, in a kind of act of like self-protection, if you kind of codify knowledge, wisdom, and you and you control all the means of production mm -hmm. and you then it in a way it's it's born out of a fear of women's fertility, but also of their own historical personal helplessness, which is like so disturbing that they can't That's like, ridiculous. Yeah. I know. I mean, we're all vulnerable. Like we I are. Know. Life is so fragile. And it sucks for men too if yeah. if you can't if you can't feel get in your touch feelings. with that. Yeah. If you can't like accept your vulnerability and you can't yeah, that's horrible. Yeah. It's really it's, it's, it's dangerous. It is dangerous. Yeah. You're cut off from part of yourself, part of your humanity. Yeah. I would love to contribute to um, a scholarship, a way of thinking that helps us get closer to our full humanity. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in that practically and theoretically. 
Are you doing anything uh, different or special as it leads up to the next election? Or do you have a kind of broader sense of the contributions that you are going to make that you've already made that you're making and, and, you know, all the other parts of your life and that you will make? And it's not really about and this upcoming election or this particular, mm-hmm. you know, presidential nightmare that we're living through. Just curious. Yeah, I'm not doing anything with any kind of political party. I'm mm-hmm. focusing um, on the humanities work that I'm doing mm-hmm. in, the, in the university and trying to keep my child alive and keep myself alive. That's a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know if you want to talk about this or not, but I wanted to ask you about your work with the Holocaust survivor working on her memoir with her totally up to you. I just, that's a really interesting and unusual part of your life in addition to everything else. You know, I worked with her for about two years on uh, finishing her memoir. She's uh, vision and hearing impaired and she can like type. So someone else had helped her get the first draft through. So I was just going over it with her and I would read it out loud um, and she would tell me what she wanted to correct, and I would make the correction. And mm. that's that's how we did that whole hundred page manuscript over the course of a couple years. So um, right now, um, we're looking for an agent or a publisher for it. Mm. She is adamant about not changing anything. So huh. that's kind of making it challenging uh, as far as like mainstream agents and publishers. She's um, it's a first person Holocaust narrative and she worked really hard on it and she's 80. So I'm like super not going to argue with an 80 year old Holocaust survivor. (laughs) Um, How did you get hooked up with her? Through the university of Denver where I'm getting my PhD. So the writing center had, they put out a call. They said this, this woman wants some help with her manuscript. And I was like, me, I'm like holding my hand up. Like, yes, yes. And what, what made you hold your hand up? You know what? I like working with authors on their manuscript. That's uh-huh. like kind of my jam or like my magical power. It's like helping people, I want to say improve, but like revise their work toward publication. Mm. So I like doing that. This was a little different from what I was used to with working with poets mm. um, in that she had a clear idea and my influence was very minimal. Maybe not, though. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Did you ever think about um, becoming an editor? Um, maybe, maybe later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm one of the poetry editors for Obsidian uh, Magazine. But yeah, maybe, maybe later, mm-hmm. I would like to do that. Yeah. And did working with her get into your own work? Not really, mm-hmm. but it did. Like, kind of give me some more spine. Interesting. Yeah. Because she's very opinionated, and I thought that was delightful. And she's, like, this tiny elderly woman, but she, like, knows. She's, like, very clear about what she wanted and what she didn't want. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can take that into my own way of being in the world. Yeah. I love that. All right. Want to read something else? Yes. Awesome. The world says not to expect the world, but do it anyway. Be made all out of love taken, bestowed, lived through, by means of, without the beauty we don't want to waste, and the world says it wants, but trashes, sees as glut, 
usable in a finite manner. We like talk of human forevers as holes in us, unfilled, we're raggedy apartments. Who do we blame for such schism? Runaways and orchids tattooed on wrists or thighs as dull men scoff. We still say keep fighting and love me again. Don't the pines die too and exactly with our names. Wow, I'm excited for this book. Thank you very much. So what questions, if any, are you always hoping somebody asks you and they never ask you or they ask you, but they're just like, they don't really want to know the answer. Hmm. And I'm not trying to get you to like. No, I, I have I, something immediately came to oh, mind. And that's like, how do you do it? Uh-huh. And people like, I don't like hate people that ask, ask that question, but I am bored of that question. Uh-huh. Because obviously I just like get it done. It seems very simple to me. And like and also some things don't get done. Yeah. I wrote an essay um about being a solo parent. God. For it was we were on a panel about mothering. It's called Mothering Solo for AWP a few years ago with um, Marcella Sulak and a few other mom writers. Did you ever read um Carly Moore's essay about like no, I will not have coffee with you. That's not what it's yes, called. Yes, she yeah. said that to me. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like some, th- some things you just can't do because you have other things that are a priority. Yeah. So that's that's how you do it. You, you prioritize. Do you think that that question, when it gets asked, is a code for either you shouldn't be able to do all these things? Yes. <laughs> do you think it comes out of the person who's asking's envy? I don't know. I don't want to speculate. Mm-hmm. But um, the assumption that I shouldn't or that I couldn't or that I, you know, ought to be looking haggard while doing it, you know, that's kind of the thing I side-eye a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I'm I'm so excited to be in the room with you. And I know I that when I leave. I appreciate this so much. Well, I'm like, when I leave, I'm going to be like, oh, why didn't I ask her this? Um, <laughs> but that's okay, too. You know, I, yeah. it's, I, I'm trying to, in my work and in my life to be less anxious about feeling like I have to cover everything and mm-hmm. get everything in one poem or get everything in one conversation. Like, there's no way. There's right. just no right. way. So I'm trying to work on that, but it's hard for me because I have that feeling of like, you know, we're not in the same place usually and, you know, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. Well, I think to add on to like longer conversation, but like we're often taught that things have to be perfect Mm -hmm. and that we shouldn't miss a T or an I to dot. And um, sometimes we just have to let shit go. And that's okay. It's okay to let things go. It's okay to have moments of regret even because that means that you had an experience that I don't want to say taught something, but you had an experience that created a response in you that was fruitful and that can continue. There's a word continuance again. So why not have that feeling of continuance? instead of regret like how could we continue a thing that we wished wouldn't end but is has ended how can we continue it without 
that person or that place or, or that thing or animal or present? Like, how can we continue the experience and the feeling of it in our practice or in our asking questions of others and stuff mm-hmm. like that? Like, I'm interested in that. Yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, it, should we should we end? Okay. It's really painful to, <laughs> to do that, to say goodbye. Okay. Well, this has been really, really wonderful. And I really um, am so grateful to you for giving me this time in between the many other things that you are wonderfully doing. It's been an honor, Rachel. And I really appreciate the space to talk about what I'm doing in a deep way with such incredible questions. So thank you very much for this. Thank you. This has been episode 62 of Commonplace with Kadisha Queen. This episode was produced by myself, Nicholas Fuenzalita, Christine LaRusso, Becca De Gregorio, and Doreen Wang. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman, and the Commonplace theme music was written and performed by Moses Zucker-Gorin. Many thanks to Yes Yes Books, Argos Books, Akashic Books, Noemi Press, Wesleyan University Press, and Duke University Press for donating books to our raffle. Thank you to our wonderful patrons and to you, listener. And now, here is a preview of the Sound Machine Audio Project, sound designed and produced by TK Broderick and myself. I recommend you listen with headphones for the full effect, and I would be deeply grateful if you would support the project. Go to soundmachineproject.com for more information. Take care, and thank you for listening. The snow falls and falls on the frozen ground. The sky dilates and effaces. Do you know how many placentas, I mean poems, I've made in my lifetime? Some were like flowers, a slowly gathering female harmonium of orgasmic expression. Some sustained no one and were but the abrupted, aborted, stillborn materials of conception that unbecame me. Tonight I try to conjure small clitoral bulbs buried deep below the rock-hard terra while Allen Ginsberg sings Hari, Hari, Hari Krishna. How I love to hear Allen Ginsberg singing and saying, I'm not so sure about the original sin thing you want to push on everyone. Allen says, The great secret is no secret, and reads his poem, Whale's Visitation. O mother, no harm on thy body, says Allen Ginsberg, smelling the brown, vagina-moist ground, harmless, tasting the violet thistle hair, sweetness, declaims Allen Ginsberg. And when Allen Ginsberg tells Buckley to stop protecting all the old aunts of America from the clubs of language and the blood of words that's running out of people's heads. 
the camera lingers on Alan's well-worn boots as if to discredit him. Alan, I love your dusty shoes and blue socks, but your jeans are too short and Peter Orlovsky should have snipped that stray thread before letting you go on television. Wait, what was that unearthly glimmer? Who goes there?